right. Now, I, I wish that for all of you folks who are just coming in this morning, I wish I could just somehow cram into your, your mind everything that we have learned over the last, uh, believe it or not, what's been almost a, a year now. I mean, we started last Easter Sunday in our study of the book of Revelation, and this is the 46th week in our, our series, and uh, we have made it all the way to chapter 7. Uh, we're on a roll now, though. But uh, in chapter 7, the Lord is... Now, now listen, okay? In chapter 7, the Lord is allowing John to see the greatest revival that will ever take place on this earth. Now, if you haven't been here for this study, when you hear me say that John was seeing the greatest revival that will ever take place on this earth, it sounds like I'm, I'm not using proper grammar. It, it sounds like I've got the tense of my verbs messed up here. But the fact is, in this revelation that John received, the Lord allowed John to actually see things that were actually happening that haven't happened yet. What we learned from the book of Revelation is that what John was seeing wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. Over and over and over and over and over in this book, what he does is he keeps telling you about what he, he saw. You say, well, how in the world could he possibly have seen things happening that haven't happened yet? Well, we saw back in, in chapter 1 in verse 4, that our God is, is not bound to time and space like we are. Our God is He which was and is and is to come, and He's all of those at the very same time. You say, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Well, welcome to the club. There's none of us that do, because you see, we're dealing with an infinite God, and with finite minds, you'll never understand the infinite. But it doesn't negate the fact that John actually saw things happening that haven't happened yet, and in chapter 7, John sees the greatest revival in the history of mankind. And interestingly enough, it's a revival that takes place on the earth during the absolute darkest period of time in the history of the entire world, a time that the Bible refers to as the time of tribulation. Jesus said of this seven-year period in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, he said that there's never been a time like it, and there'll never be a time like it. And as we, we, we saw as we were making our way through chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, it is the time on this planet, this, this period of tribulation, it is a time when, when sin finally comes home to roost on this planet. It, it's the time when, when man finally reaps the full harvest of sin. In chapter 5 and verse 1, what we find is God discloses to us a seven-sealed book. And then in chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus, the Lamb, begins to open the seals, and as he does, the tribulation period begins to unfold on this planet. And we saw in verse 2, with the opening of the first seal, that it begins with the appearance of a world dictator. He's referred in other places in Scripture as the Antichrist, the man of sin. And we see here as the tribulation begins in verse 2, 
He comes on the scene after the removal of the true believers in Jesus Christ on this planet. It's pictured for us back in chapter 4 and verse 1. It's the event that we're presently anticipating on this planet at any moment. There's no sign that needs to be fulfilled for this next event to take place, what is called the rapture of the church, where everybody who has entered into a personal relationship with God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will bodily be removed from this planet, the Bible says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And we saw in verse 2 of chapter 6 that when the Antichrist makes his appearance, he comes in imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. He's riding on a white horse the same way that you see Jesus returning at his second coming in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, on a white horse. He comes to power, verse 2 shows us, by a series of treaties and pacts and an arms control program. You'll notice in verse 2 that he has a bow but no arrows, and he is going to put on the greatest show of miraculous power that this world has seen since Jesus Christ bodily walked on this planet. But after three and a half years, the facade is stripped away and all of the peace and safety is converted into war and killing in verse 4. In verse 6, it's converted into economic catastrophe and hunger. And then in verse 8, it's converted into pestilence and death. And by the time it's all over, God has not only unleashed the full harvest of, of man's sin on this planet, what we find at the end of chapter 6 is he's unleashed his wrath. And what God does in verse 12 is he grabs a hold of this universe that is his, he grabs it in his own hands, and he begins to shake it. And it begins to send the world into convulsions and a whole series of natural disasters. It begins erupting from within, and at the same time that it's erupting from within, it's being pulverized, absolutely pulverized, by meteor showers that are just slamming down on the earth. It affects the sun, the moon, and the stars, the climate, the mountains, the oceans, and every single human being that is on this planet. And by the end of verse 16, sinful man is seeking death in hopes of hiding from what he calls the wrath of the Lamb. The chapter ends with both a, a monumental statement and a monumental question in verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And in chapter 7, we find ourselves in a parenthesis. You'll notice that when chapter 6 ends, look back at verse 12, the sixth seal was opened, and then we come to the end of the chapter. But the seventh seal, there's seven of them. We saw that in chapter 5 and verse 1. There's seven seals. The seventh isn't opened until chapter 8 and verse 1. So chapter 7 is a parenthesis that's describing some things that were taking place during the opening of the six seals that we were studying when we were in chapter 6. And we'll go into detail on that just a little bit later this morning. But what I'm wanting to make sure that you get in your mind is the big picture of what's going on in chapter 7. Like I said, it is describing in chapter 7 the greatest revival that will ever take place on this planet. And the whole chapter revolves around two key groups of people. One of the groups is found in verse 4, and it is a group of 144,000 sealed Jews. 
The other group is found in verse 9, and it is a numberless multitude of saved Gentiles. 144,000 sealed Jews in verse 4, numberless sealed Gentiles in verse 9, and those two groups will serve as, as really the main points of our outline in, in chapter 7. And today we're going to be looking specifically at this group of 144,000 sealed Jews, and let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed in 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed, were sealed 12,000. Now, believe it or not, that passage that we just read has sent more Americans to hell than probably any other passage in the entire Bible. And, and let me tell you, this, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that this book is a sharp, two-edged sword. And let me tell you, it is so sharp that you better make sure that you don't pick it up in the wrong place. Because if you pick it up in the wrong place, I'm telling you, it can mortally wound you. There have been more people in, in this country specifically who have gone to hell claiming Bible verses and applying Bible verses that had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with them than there have been people who have gone to hell absolutely rejecting the Bible. Are you understanding that statement? People holding on to the Bible, claiming verses out of the Bible, and going to hell on them. Because it's a sharp, two-edged sword. So I warn you, you've got to be very careful. And this, for some strange reason, has been a passage that the devil has been able to use to mess a lot of people up. And so because it's been such a stumbling block, what I want us to do as we approach this chapter is I want us to be able to take the absolute sim most simplistic approach to it that we possibly could do. Uh, we don't want to get, you know, into all, you know, weirded out kind of things. You know what, when we were in school, do you remember, you know, what a reporter would do? What does a reporter do? He asks some questions, right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? You know, it doesn't get any more basic than that. And that's all we're going to do as we look at this group of 144,000. Okay, so let's, let's get into it. First of all, asking who? Who is sealed? Well, we know that verse 4 says that it's 144,000 of somebody. There's 144,000 of them, but the question is, who are they? Okay, now, now listen, it's very important that we properly identify 
who they are, because this is what I was referring to just a couple of minutes ago. This passage, the one we're dealing with right here, has given rise to at least four major American cults. What they do is they all read themselves into this number of 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses are out knocking on our doors this morning, and aren't you glad you ain't home? But the Jehovah's Witnesses are out knocking on our doors this morning, trying to work their way into this number of 144,000 that they call the anointed class who is going to share a spirit existence with Christ in heaven, ruling over all of those that didn't make it into that number on the earth. Herbert W. Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God teaches that the 144,000 are actually Anglo-Saxons and will be made up of Englishmen and Americans, and their followers are told that they might be able to find entrance into this if they'll double or triple their tithes, then they'll have a chance to make it into that 144,000, and they even promise to send those folks a telegram when the time comes so that they'll know when to escape to the, the wilderness in Petra where they're going to have a camp that's all going to be set up for them. The Seventh-day Adventists tell their people that the 144,000 are, are faithful Sabbath-day observers. And the Latter-day Saints, we saw last week, they claim to be descendants of the tribe of Ephraim. We saw last week that Ephraim's name was blotted out of the Revelation 7 list because of his idolatry back in the book of Hosea. It lines that out specifically for us. And you see, what every single one of those groups do is they move themselves out of the church age doctrinally and into a dispensation that nobody is in yet, and they pervert the Word of God into teaching that salvation is by works. Folks, I don't care what anybody or any group says. Verse 4 says that this 144,000 aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They aren't the Worldwide Church of God. They aren't the Seventh-day Adventists. They aren't the Latter-day Saints or the reorganized Latter-day Saints. They aren't spiritual Jews. They aren't spiritual Israelites. They aren't Abraham's seed spiritually. In fact, folks, there ain't a Gentile in the bunch. There is not one of the whole 144,000 that is a Gentile. Verse 4, look at it again. It says there were sealed 144,000, listen to it, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, you know, the, the, the tribes of the children of Israel in this passage is to be taken figuratively. You know what, folks? That's the craziest thing in the world. Because they, they cling tenaciously to the fact that the 144,000 in the first half of the verse is to be taken literally. And then they turn right around and tell you that the second half of the verse is to be taken figuratively. Now, let me tell you, how in the world are you going to ever learn to study your Bible using Bible study methods like that? Now, this half, it's figurative. This half, it, 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 it is or it ain't, you know? It, when it says 144,000, it means 144,000. Not one more and not one less 
And when it says of the tribes of the children of Israel, you know what it means? It means the tribes of the children of Israel, not spiritual Israel. You see, what people want to do is say, well, you know, Paul does talk about there in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 that we really are a, a spiritual kind of a Jew. This is not talking about spiritual anything here. This is talking about flesh and blood Jews, listen to it, tribes of the children of Israel. And you see, that, that's why verse 5 says, and that's why I read the passage, the tribe of Judah the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, and it goes right on through the list telling you tribe, 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 tribe. And you see, the reason that he keeps telling you that it's a tribe is because he means tribe. See, when someone tells you that they're hoping to be one of the, the 144,000, just ask them, now, now what tribe are you from? And if you really got a sharp one, there's one or two out there, not many. I'm serious, but if you get a sharp one, they're going to say, well, see, don't you realize that, that the tribes have been lost and even the Jews don't even know what tribe they're from anymore? And then ask them, now, this Jehovah that you're talking about, do you think that Jehovah lost them just because man did? Does he know who they are? And you see, the whole ceiling thing is up to him. It's not up to anybody else. But you see, you can't read yourself into that number unless you are a Jew, a flesh and blood Jew. So the 144,000 are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. You say, well, how do you know that? It's not real difficult, is it, folks? That's what it says. Well, that's the way that you interpret it. No, that is not the way that I interpret it. That, that's what it says. And so just go with what it says. And if that weren't enough, look, look back in verse 3. The angel says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed who? The servants of our God. And you know what? If you take that phrase and you trace it through the Bible, what you're going to find is that it is always used in reference to Israel. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 55, listen to it. It's, it's laid out there for you on your study sheet. But I'm telling you, in Leviticus 25, 55, God just lays it out so clear that you'd have to be a seminary graduate to miss this. He said, For unto me the children of Israel are servants. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Folks, the servants of our God is the tribes of the children of Israel. I've listed some other references on your study sheet there so you can check them out later. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 17. Ezra chapter 5 and verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 20. In Isaiah 43 and verse 10. So that's the identification of these 144,000 from this passage, and it could not be absolutely any clearer than it is. But let me, let me show you their identification in some key other places in, in the Word of God as we compare Scripture with Scripture. First of all, this 144,000 are the remnant according to the election of grace that Paul is talking about. In Romans chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, 
the remnant according to the election of grace. And go ahead and turn back there, if you would. Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> and you'll notice in verse 4, that talk, Paul talks about the 7,000 prophets in the days of Ahab that God reserved to himself who would not bow the knee to the image of Baal. And in that same way, during the tribulation, God's going to reserve not 7,000, he's going to reserve 144,000 witnesses to himself that won't bow their knee to the image of the, of the Antichrist. God is going to have his remnant, his remnant according to the election of grace. And look down in verse 25 of this same chapter, that Paul reminds us that blindness in part is happened to Israel, okay, and that's talking, now listen, that's talking about right now, in this dispensation, in the church age, blindness has happened to Israel. They can't see what we can see, by the, for the most part. There's going to be individual cases where, where Jews become believers in Jesus Christ. Right now, they're blinded, and he says that this is blindness has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And after that, during the tribulation period, what's going to happen is once again, God is going to turn his attention to the nation of Israel. And folks, he is going to fulfill every single promise that he ever gave to the nation of Israel. They've been put on hold for just a little while while God pulls out a remnant that we call the church. And hallelujah, it's us. As soon as we're out of here, he turns his attention back to his people, the nation of Israel, where he will fulfill every single promise to those people. And the 144,000 are that believing remnant. And please understand, though, that it's not that there's just going to be 144,000 Jews that are saved in the tribulation. Because Revelation 14.4 says that the 144,000 are the first fruits. They're the first fruits of those redeemed out of Israel. So it's not only that 144,000 Jews are going to be saved during the tribulation, it's that there will only be 144,000 Jews who are, what, sealed in the tribulation. And we'll talk more about that difference ne next week. But, uh, but once you see, that the 144,000 are that believing remnant. But not only that, turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Because we see the 144,000 over here as well. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. And here... This 144,000 is referred to as the brothers of Christ. Now this is, this is another one of those passages, y'all, that a lot of folks lose their spiritual necks on. What they end up trying to do is, is apply these verses in a different dispensation than the one that the Lord is teaching about here in Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25... The context here is the same as it was in Matthew chapter 24. It's the tribulation period. That's the context we're dealing with in Matthew 24 
in 25 years. Now, make sure you get this. The teaching here isn't doctrine for the church age. Okay? The, the chapter, as the whole book of Matthew does, but the, the chapter deals specifically with the nation of Israel, and specifically the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. And I want you to look with me at what our Lord says in verse, in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, let me, let me just make sure you know what's happening here. He's describing for us here a future time of judgment. And this judgment is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, where the Bible says that all of the dead, small and great, will stand before God and will be judged. This isn't the judgment seat of Christ talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where believers in this age are judged to determine their rewards this judgment is exactly what verse 32 says that it is. It is the judgment of nations. And verse 33 says, And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw thee we and hungered, and, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, and as much as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Okay, now there's all kinds of people and churches and denominations that don't understand the first thing about the context. We're going to try to tell you that the sheep in verse 33 and 34 who inherit the kingdom are people who got saved by the list of good works that you see described in this passage. And that the brethren down in verse 40 are any people anywhere at any time in any age to whom those good works are ministered. And, and the bottom line, is, as, as far as their good works for salvation are, are concerned, is de it's determined uh, a person's salvation. And again, now this is what groups teach today, that your salvation is determined how, by how you treated your fellow man. Did you do these things? And I'm telling you, there's lots of ministries that go on today in the name of Jesus Christ, visiting people in prison and doing all of these wonderful things, not because they want to go minister to people, but because they're trying to earn their salvation through the good works that he is describing here. And listen, folks, that teaching, there, there could be nothing that is more unbiblical, unscriptural, unchristian, or idiotic than that teaching. Again, the subject here is nations. And all the way through the book, okay, context, 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 all the way through the book of Matthew, 
The word brethren is used to refer to believing Jews. You see that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, Matthew chapter 20, verse 24, chapter 23, verse 8, Matthew 28, and verse 10. And since the context of Matthew 24 and 25 is the tribulation period, then what you've got here in this passage, now listen, what this passage is teaching is that the Gentile nations of the world are going to be judged for their treatment of the 144,000 believing remnant during the tribulation period. That's who the brethren are. That's who the brothers of Christ are. The believing remnant out of the nation of Israel during the tribulation period, the 144,000. And if you read anything else into that, you've blown the context, you've blown the teaching that, that Jesus is laying out for us. So, who are these sealed 144,000? They are Jews, they are the servants of our God, and specifically 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. They are the believing remnant according to the election of grace, and they are the brothers of Christ or Christ's brethren here in Matthew chapter 25. And folks, now listen. That is such an important thing for you to nail down in this passage here in Revelation 7, and you can be turning back there. It is so important that you nail down just who this sealed 144,000 actually is, and that you don't try to make them be anything other than flesh and blood Jews, or you don't try to move this group into any other dispensation than the one that you find in here in Revelation chapter 7. And so you, you can see here that if, if, if you just approach this passage right here in Revelation 7 the same way that you, you, you approach the whole rest of the Bible and you just simply believe what it says, as it says it, where, where it says it, there's no doubt about who this is. I mean, it, it is just as simple as John 3.16. But you've got to leave it alone. Just believe what it says, as it says it, where it, it says it. But there's another very important question that we need to have answered from Revelation chapter 7, and it is when. Okay, where are they sealed? This is letter B on your outline. And again, you've got to be very careful or you're going to get yourself messed up. Now, now listen, don't ever forget... Don't ever forget that God told us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 that the way that you're going to understand this book is not simply by reading it. Now, I'm all for reading through the Bible in, in a year, you know, and you know, following the little chart and all that. And that's, that's great. Let me just tell you, though, you're never really going to fully understand the Bible doing that. Now, do it. You, you need to get it in you. But the Bible says that the way that you, and God tells us specifically, the way that you approach his book is that this is a book that must be studied Studied, He says in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study this book, to show thyself approved unto God a, what's the next word? Workman. You see, that's why nobody studies the Bible, because it is work. He says you've got to be a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, now, now just listen. What that verse tells us, is that if we don't study this book and if we're not workmen in that book that it's possible to be unapproved unto God, that it is possible to be 
ashamed before him, and it is possible to wrongly divide his book. Is that correct? You see, now that's why on the top of your study sheet, that's why we're the 46th week in this study and we're in chapter 7 because this is a study. It's not a cruise. <laughs> we're here to be workmen. We're going to this book and we're trying to study it. And you see, because we have, we know where God makes his divisions in this book. And you see, that's what he tells you. Study so that you can make the right divisions in that thing. And you know what? We know right where we are in chapter 7 because we went through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, prior to getting to chapter 7. Okay, so we know where we are, but look at what John says in verse 1. Okay? Now, now, now hang with me. Listen very carefully. John says in verse 1, And after these things... And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Okay, now the question you've got to ask yourself is after what things, right? Okay, so ask yourself that. What's the answer? Obviously, it's after the opening of the six seals in chapter 6. But I want you to notice now, he doesn't say, look at verse 1 again, he, he doesn't say that after the sixth seal was opened, then the 144,000 were sealed. Because, you see, that's not what the first three verses tell us. Now, now listen very carefully. John is simply telling us in verse 1, when he saw the 144,000 sealed, he says, after these things I saw. In other words, God showed it to him after... The sixth seal was opened, but that's not when the sealing of the 144,000 took place chronologically. You say, well, how do you know that? We know that by what he tells us in verses 1, 2, and 3 here in chapter 7. I mean, he tells you in these verses when these 144,000 were sealed, and listen, it wasn't after the judgment of the tribulation period. He clearly tells us in this passage that it was before the actual judgment of the tribulation period was unleashed. It was at the beginning of the tribulation period. As I told you before, in chapter 7, he's simply telling you about something that happened during the opening of the six seals in chapter 6. You say, well, boy, oh, boy, I don't know for sure if I'd ever gotten that. Yes, you would have. Let, let me show you. Go, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you a place where God does this, and, and none of us trip over it at, at all. Now, there's a lot of people to do. But in Genesis chapter 1, look at what it says in verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay? And what, what, what we've got here is the creation of man, right? Now drop down to chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, now listen, I, I go speak at a, at a basketball camp every, every Wednesday night during the summer, and I'm preaching to, you know, hundreds of, of lost kids out there, most of them from no background. There are groups of them, however, that go to various and sundry parochial schools from the Cleveland area, I'm telling you, every single summer, because I bring them back right into this whole thing of how where sin entered into the picture. 
every single summer, I'll get guys walk up after the deal and say, you know, you were talking about that creation there in, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, and don't you understand that you can't take the Bible literally because there's two creation accounts right there? And I'm, I'm like, two creation accounts? What are you, t what are you talking about? No. In, in chapter 2 and verse 7, he's simply telling you how he did what he said he was going to do in verse 26. Right? Are you guys tracking with me? And nobody here struggles with that at all. I mean, that's as plain as it can possibly be. Same exact thing is happening in Revelation chapter 7. Okay? What he's doing in, in chapter 6 is he's giving you an overview of the tribulation period. Okay? And we, we saw two weeks ago that it's the first of four times in the book of Revelation that he brings us through the tribulation period. And with the opening of the sixth seal... In chapter 6, we come all the way through the tribulation period from beginning to, e to end. I mean, by the time you get to chapter 7, the whole tribulation period is over. Okay, then in chapter 7, he's going to begin to, to tell us some of the specifics that went on in the midst of the opening of those six seals. And one of those specifics is the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. And what we see here specifically in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 7 is that the judgment of the tribulation period is restrained until these 144,000 are sealed. In verse 3, the angel says to the other angels of judgment, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God. Do you understand? The judgment of the tribulation period is restrained until then. And we've already seen the unleashing of the judgment in chapter 6 in its entirety. So we know what we're dealing with here. So notice back in verse 1, John shows us the instruments of the restraining. Uh, look at it. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, a lot of critics of the Bible jump all over the, you know, the fact that John calls it, look in verse 1 again, that he calls it the four corners of the earth, and they say, well, you know, so much for your, your big, fat, inspired Bible, because check it out, back in the first century, God didn't even know that the earth is round. You say this is written by God, and he, evidently he didn't even know that the stinking thing was round. Okay? When you, those people make that statement, and yet they'll walk into an army recruiter's office where they'll see a poster on the wall that says, serving in the four corners of the globe. And they don't have a problem one with it. You know what I'm saying? There's nobody that's saying, what? I've never joined this organization. They don't even know that the earth is, is, is round. No, they walk in there and they see that and they know exactly what, what it means. And I'll just tell you, folks, it, it, is, it is wild how a rational man can become so irrational when he's running scared from this book. I mean, it, it, it's wild, what the, the thinking process that he'll begin to go through. God knows that the earth is round. He even tells us that in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. 
He told us that over 2,000 years before Christopher Columbus came upon that fact. He told us back in that verse that the Lord sits on the circle of the earth. In Luke chapter 17, verse 31 and verse 34, Jesus talked about how that it is both day and night on the earth at the same time. And I'll tell you what, it would be pretty difficult for that to happen if the earth weren't round. So God knew that the earth was round because, of course, he made it. But you see, it's just that in his communication to us, he doesn't always use scientific terms. He uses figures of speech just like we do when we communicate. But folks, listen, you can mark it down. This, this several thousand year old book is far in advance of any science book that has ever been released on this planet or will ever be released on this planet. And as you start to dig into the history of science, what you find out is that the discoveries in one generation make the science books of the previous generation obsolete. In fact, there is a, a, a library in Paris, France, the, the Library of Louvre in Paris, France, and if you were to take the, the science books there and you were to put them in a straight line, one right next to the other, listen, there would be over three and a half miles of obsolete science books, and more of them are added to the list every year. But listen, when it comes to the Bible, do you understand that God has never, ever, ever had to go back and rewrite or revise anything that he's ever written? Now, now the Bible, I, I'll give you, the Bible is not a, a science book per se, but the Bible teaches a whole lot about science. I mean, there's all kinds of things, and what it says about science has proven through the years to be 100% accurate. And in generations when it didn't seem like it was accurate, when science knew something that the Bible didn't, you know what it was? It wasn't the fact that the Bible missed. What it was is science hadn't yet caught up with this two to 4,000-year-old book. That's the way, and it, it's come down like that every single time because you're holding a supernatural book in your hand. You're holding the Word of God. So now listen, don't let it bend your wig that God knows how to speak the same kind of language that you do. Okay, He knows how to speak the language of the common man and He uses the phrases, the four corners of the earth, the same way that we do to speak of the four points of the compass. The north, the south, the east, and the west. And at each of these four corners... What verse 1 tells us is God has four angels that he's positioned there. And he says that these four angels that are standing on the four corners of the earth are holding the four winds of the earth. And obviously, those are the four winds that would blow out of the four corners, the north, the south, the east, and the west, and what we find out here is that in some way that only God understands, He utilizes angels to control the weather conditions of the earth. And I say weather conditions because if the world's wind patterns are changed, it'll have radical effects in all of the rest of nature. In fact, we're experiencing in parts of our country right now the most devastating weather conditions in our history. It's all because of a weather condition that we call what? 
El Nino. And I, you know what? I've done all kinds of reading on this thing, trying to you know, figure out what the deal is. But listen, you know how it starts? Do you know how an El Nino starts? Check, check this out. With nothing more than a weakening of the trade winds in the Pacific and, and Western, or Central and Western Pacific, just south of the equator. All it is, it's the trade winds don't blow like they normally do. I mean, that, that's it. A change in the wind patterns, and interestingly enough, do you, do you know what the name El Nino means? Any of you that have taken one of our trips to the Philippines, maybe you've never equated the two things, but all of you that have been to the Philippines, you know what it is. Because El Nino is that little idol over there in the Philippines, the little Christ child. You know what El Nino means? It means Christ child. And you see, isn't that, it's pretty fitting, at least in my mind, because if you think that the weather produced by the El Nino, the Christ child, is devastating, just wait till Christ, in his full power and majesty, tells the angels that are holding the four winds of the earth, let him go, boys. I mean, listen, El Nino ain't going to be jacked. I mean, we, we can't even begin to comprehend the, the devastation. And we won't take the time to go back there, but back in the book of Job, which we've already seen in, in this study several weeks ago, the book of Job is all about a Jew who is going through seven days and seven nights, a week of what? Of tribulation. And in Job chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you've got a perfect picture of what Revelation 7 is talking about here. When the tribulation started in Job, listen to it, listen. It says that his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house he was blowing from the four corners of the earth okay from the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead and you see that's the kind of destruction that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1 and you know what you call a wind that blows from all four corners biblically you call it a whirlwind. And listen, when, when, when you get bored sometimes, you don't have anything to do, just, just trace the word whirlwind through the Bible sometime and see what you find. You know what? It's going to point you to the context of Revelation chapter 7 every single time. But in verse 1, these are the four angels that have power over the wind. And you might want to just note that the book of Revelation talks about other angels that have been given other power. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 18, it talks about the angel that has power over fire. And in Revelation 16, 5, the angel that has power over the waters. And again, what you see here is the fact that God utilizes angels to control the forces of nature. Now, I know that man always points to all kinds of scientific reasons that cause 
certain things to happen, you know, in, in nature, and you'll hear him talk about, you know, the atmospheric conditions and the, the variations in temperature in the upper atmosphere and the, the, the alterations in the atmospheric pressure and, and the, the certain land, mountain, and sea configurations. And, and you, we've got all of this, all of this scientific junk that we're going to, you know, give as an explanation that causes the wind and the rain and the thunder and the lightning and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and the volcanoes and the droughts and the fires. And we've got all of our little scientific causes, and all of them may be true, but what you find out from this book is all of those are secondary causes. If you want to get them back to their direct cause, you go all the way back to God and His what he calls in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, his ministering spirits called the angels. You know, what, know why El Nino is happening? Oh, yeah, we can go scientifically and talk about, you know, the trade winds down in the, you know, the lower part of the equator there in that central and western Pacific, and, you know, the, the temperature of the, the, the water is changing, and because of that it's blowing it. We can go through all the scientific stuff. You want to get down to the bottom line? God. It's God. And it is every single time. But, but you see, man feels a whole lot more comfortable explaining all of this stuff away to scientific causes rather than supernatural causes. And you know why he does that? Because once he equates all of this stuff that we've listed there to the judgment of God, then he's got to face the fact that one of these days that judgment is going to be unleashed on him as a sinner. And as we saw when we were going through chapter 6, at the end, man's first reaction and natural inclination to his sin is to what? It's to hide. It's to hide. And, and let me just talk to you here for a few minutes because there's probably some people in this room this morning who are hiding from God. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but through the years, as I've just been watching people since I've been in the ministry, there's basically three ways that I've found that man hides from God. The first way is by sedating himself. By sedating himself. And there's several ways in our culture that a man is found to do that, through alcohol, through drugs, money, the pursuit of things, the pursuit of uh, a pleasure, which includes all kinds of, of things. And, and now listen, I, I know nobody goes down you know, the path of these things, you know, saying, I want to sedate myself because I'm hiding from God. I, I understand. Nobody's going out and doing that. But what we do have to ask ourselves is what is that certain something that people all over the world are trying to escape in those things? Where is it that they think that this path is ultimately going to lead them? And I'm suggesting to you that a man recognizes, though he doesn't put it in these terms, but a man recognizes the fact that there is a God-shaped hole inside of him that he doesn't want God to see. And so he tries to fill that with all other kinds of things to make him feel like he's okay. He sedates himself. And if he doesn't do it, hide from God by sedating himself, he'll do it by flattering himself. And you know how he does that? He does that through religion. You see, religion 
is man's invention to make himself feel good about himself in relation to God. Religion is man reaching up to God through the vehicle of human achievement. It's man convincing himself that by doing good to his fellow man that he's better than his fellow man. And so by doing those things, he now is going to be accepted by God, which is really nothing more than nasty, dirty pride that's wrapped in the garments of humility, and it's detestable to God. God's not impressed, and it doesn't matter how sincere the person is. It doesn't matter how religious they are or how good this person may appear to everybody else. Someone says, well, you know, that's, that's your opinion of this, this, this thing. No, again, this is, we're not dealing with my opinion. This book says that a man is so utterly sinful in Isaiah 64, 6, that even his righteousnesses are filthy rags in the sight of God. Listen, the whole message of the Bible is that man is totally incapable of reaching up to God. And because he's so incapable, God reached down to man and did for man what he could never do for himself. God left heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and came down to this planet to lay down his life and shed his blood as a sacrifice to pay for our sin that separates us from him. And when we come along and we try to reach up to God in the name of religion, oh, it feels right. You know why it feels right? Because sinful man likes to feel like there's something that he can do. Because you see, when he's doing something, it flatters him. And so humanly, oh, it feels right and it seems right. And that's why the book of Proverbs in chapter 14 and verse 12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And listen, it, it doesn't matter how much your religion uses the name of Jesus, God, salvation, the Bible, heaven, or anything else, if it teaches you that your salvation is dependent upon something that you do in addition to what Christ did through his death, burial, and resurrection, I don't care what brand of Christianity it is called, it is a religion of the devil. And the thing that is so sad about that is that it will send you to hell all the while that you're thinking you're on your way to heaven. And that's what Jesus warned us about in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. What he said is there's all kinds of religions out there that are saying this way to heaven. But he says they're falsely marked. They're going to lead you to destruction. But they're saying this way to heaven. We've said it before. We need to say it again. You can always tell the difference between a false religion and true Bible Christianity because religion flatters you. True Bible Christianity will flatten you. It brings you to the point of absolute helplessness and despair where you cry out to God, Oh God, I know that I am a sinful wretch and I know that there's absolutely nothing whatsoever that I can do about my sin. And I cry out to you for the only thing 
that I know that can wash my sin away, the blood of Jesus Christ, and I cast myself before Jesus Christ now in poverty of spirit as my Lord and my Savior. That's what I'm talking about. It flattens you. You come to the point where you say, I know there's nothing that I can do. And when you come to that place at that very moment, He gives you what you could never attain through 10,000 years of doing good works and getting baptized and going to Mass and going to sacraments or any other thing. Religion doesn't bring you to God. Religion is the place where we hide from God. And you know what? It'll damn your soul to hell a whole lot faster than the guy who's sedating himself. Because have you found the people who are sedating themselves, they know they're lost. They know they're going to hell. But the people who are flattering themselves think they're going to heaven so they never look out of their system to see that they've got nothing but a religion that'll damn their soul to hell. But either way, man hides from God by sedating himself, by flattering himself. And there's a third way. And really this brings us back to the point here in Revelation 17. Man hides himself from God by educating himself. Now you see, I'm telling you, the devil's slick, y'all. He's really slick. You see, the devil wants to keep man from God. And so what he does is he gets him to exercise his flesh by sedating himself. And he gets man to thinking, I'm too bad for God. Another group of people, he gets them to exercise their spirit. And they get real religious. And you know what they say? I'm too good for God. And then there's this third group of people, and the devil gets them to exercise their intellect. And you know what they say? I'm too smart for God. And you see, man wants to educate himself. And every time that you find him doing that, he's going to get himself into the realm of science. And what you're going to find, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, it's what the Bible calls science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called. Because, listen, true science is nothing more than understanding how God works through the laws that he himself established would govern and order his universe. That, that's all it is. But you see, man's fi science falsely so-called is all these little ins and outs of all these little reasons and this causes this to happen and all of that stuff and what Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1 teaches us as all of the Bible does is that you explain science as a secondary cause that is determined by the direct cause of God. And we learn in that whole process that he contracts the, the use of ministering spirits that the Bible calls angels. And in verse 1, when we see these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, they're holding the four winds of the earth. They're restraining the judgment of the wind upon the earth. So the instruments of the restraining are these four angels. And notice next in verse 2, the instruction concerning the restraining. John says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God 
in their foreheads. And this is, this is what lets us know that the sealing of these 144,000 Jews, that, that it didn't take place chronologically after that sixth seal was opened, because the instruction from the angel of the east that we see here in verse 2, which is obviously an angel of, uh, of higher rank than the, the four angels of the wind, He's commanding, he's giving the orders that would ultimately come from God. And what he says is that the 144,000 must be sealed before they're allowed to execute judgment upon the earth. And back in chapter 6, we began to see that at least as far back as the opening of the second seal in verse 3, the judgment had already begun to blow. So we know that the time frame that we're dealing with here, with the sealing of the 144,000 in chapter 7, is sometime at the beginning of the tribulation period, and certainly within the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Because we know by then, that by the time you open that, that second seal in verse 3, the whirlwind of God's judgment begins to beat upon the earth. So the angel that ascends out of the east gives the instruction to these four angels that have the power to unleash judgment upon the earth to restrain that judgment until the servants of God could be sealed. And that's the intent of the restraining. So that before the judgment was unleashed, all of God's servants could be sealed by God himself. So that's when they're sealed. We know that it takes place in the midst of chapter 6, long after the rapture of the church. So, so you see, you can't read the, the church into this 144,000. It's coming at that period of time. Now, now, now listen, don't, don't pack up on me. Okay, just, just hang on to your stuff for just a minute. That, that's really as far as we're going to be able to get today. But I, I want you to see here, there's a lot of of unanswered questions that we haven't dealt with here. I mean, what is this seal in their foreheads? And what does it, what does it actually mean? Why, why are they sealed? And what do they actually do once they are sealed? And how does this seal in their forehead relate to the mark that the Antichrist is going to put into the foreheads of other people? And if all of the Christians are raptured out of the earth in chapter 4 and verse 1, how is it that this group of people comes to believe in Jesus Christ if all of the Christians are already gone. And you see, these are some of the things we're going to be getting, getting into next week. But, but, but now listen, don't pack up. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there is coming a day of judgment, as we've, we've seen very clearly this morning, once that day has come, there, before the judgment actually begins to blow, there's a group of 144,000 Jews that God is going to seal. And they'll escape that judgment. But what I want you to see is that God is giving you the opportunity this morning to be sealed before the time of judgment comes. You've got the same opportunity that this group of 144,000 Jews are going to have that you won't have one second after 
the trumpet has sounded and the church of Jesus Christ has been removed. You're in, you're in a parenthesis right now. Do you understand that? Just like we were all morning in chapter 7, you're there this morning. You're in a parenthesis and God's saying, I, I really love to seal you. This is what the book of Ephesians talks about with my Holy Spirit. You see, all of us that are in this room have a dead spirit. That's why we act the way that we do. That's why we're, we're so detestable to God because we're sinful. We're dead spiritually. And God gives us the opportunity when we come to Jesus Christ confessing that there's nothing that we can do on our own to receive salvation other than what He did for us. And you know what happens? At that very moment, we are sealed with the Spirit of the living God. He moves inside of us and we're sealed. And God's going to give some of you that are in this room this morning that opportunity to experience the free gift of salvation that will seal you from the judgment that is inevitable, that will be soon coming to this planet. Let's bow our heads. And if you're here today, and as we've been going through these things today, God has been showing you your need of a, of a Savior, your need to receive Jesus Christ and your total inability on your own to remove sin, whether it be through this church or any church on the planet, through any baptism that this church would administer or that would be administered by any church on the planet, through good works, though we could do them for 10,000 years if you've been brought to a place of understanding that since we could do nothing about our sin, God did everything for us that could possibly be done. And you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today. In just a moment, our, our service is going to be concluded. Our, our pastors will be up on the right front of the worship center and on the left front of the worship center, positioning themselves there to answer any question that you may have. Maybe some of you are here, you, you want to be saved. Just come and say, man, I want to be saved. Maybe others of you are, are like, I, I don't understand all of this, but I, I've got some questions. It, it, just, just tell them that. You're not obligating. Nobody's going to put you in a corner and make you make some decision you're not wanting to make. But, oh, by all means, if God is speaking to your heart today, would you come and would you talk to somebody? Respond to the voice of God as He begins to work in your heart. Lord, I, I do thank You for this book. It is so clear to us about the way of salvation and, and who You are and Your works. Lord, we thank You so much that You were willing to come to the sinful place be drugged through the muck and mire of our sin and then to literally become sin for us who knew no sin that we might be able to come into a relationship with God again and Lord we just we are so grateful for that and I, I pray today for folks that are here that have never genuinely entered into that relationship Oh Lord, I I know 
that I can't bring a person to the point of, of conviction. You said that that was the job of your Spirit. So we pray that even now the Spirit of God will do what no man can do in the hearts of people here. May this be the day of salvation for people in this room that you're speaking to and drawing to yourself. May they respond in obedience to your call and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior today. And help those of us that are already in that relationship to take the truths that you're teaching us from this book and may they burn in our hearts and may we see the urgency of the, the hour and may we open our mouth to, to share with other people who you are and what you came to this planet to do for us. Now, work in our midst even now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.